1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, and this was to be a normal conversation on Russian affairs, and you do that with Steven Sestanovich. He is Kenan Fellow at CFR. There's nothing else to say but his wonderful work at Columbia and, of course, his Cornell and Harvard over uh, the years. But we have been derailed, and we have been derailed by Marina and a video that went viral across all of this world and our modern social media, uh, a woman with courage on a Russian TV set. We've all seen this on radio, perhaps many of you have seen it as well, and Marina has disappeared in protest in Moscow. Dr. Sostanovich, thank you so much for joining us today. What will happen to Marina? Um,
2: Marina is not in a good place. I think we can say that for sure. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't put money on her job tenure, uh, but she has uh, gained a certain protection by being coming so notorious and famous so suddenly uh she speaks for a lot of people you know russian experts the intelligentsia are all saying openly to westerners we're depressed uh we can't understand what's happening people want to leave the country uh so she uh, she expressed that individually but for a very very large number of russians
1: what is the potential of Mr. Putin finding other employment or being derailed in his efforts in Ukraine. Over the weekend, I thought Stephen Kotkin of Princeton was just wonderful in the New Yorker and other articles as well. How do you gauge Mr. Putin's fragility given his special operation?
2: Well, if, if, if Putin wins, uh, he's better off. Uh, if he fails, uh, you know, Russian leaders are not rewarded for failure. And his problem now is that uh, he's got a military offensive that is stalling. Uh, He has uh, uh, an economic elite that is panicked about what is going to happen to their position. Uh, He has the intelligentsia depressed and speaking out, uh, and he's got every indication that Western governments are going to be united to do two things indefinitely maintain sanctions and keep arming the Ukrainians, and that is a formula that makes it hard for him to win. If he doesn't win, the the institutions that have supported him will also be at risk. Uh, The Russians' political future is really more unpredictable today than it has been in years.
3: Well, and I wonder, you know, especially given your experience, Professor, as an ambassador at large to the Soviet Union, when Vladimir Putin uh, took his helm as president of the country uh, over in 2000, I'm wondering who you think could fill a power void, should he be taken down in some capacity?
2: You know, this is going to be very hard, because the institutions that would like to fill that void are going to be weakened and discredited. The military, the intelligence agencies, um, they, they've been the spine of the Russian system, and yet they are going to look as foolish and as harmful to the country's interests as the Communist Party did in 1991. Remember in the the final collapse of the Soviet Union was triggered by the military intelligence uh, people trying to do something immensely stupid, which is to have a coup against Gorbachev that the people rose up against. What has happened in Ukraine is possibly, if it turns out this way, uh, the same kind of institution discrediting uh, step that puts everything up for grabs in Russian politics.
4: Got to leave it there, Stephen. Fantastic to have you on this program as always. Please stay close so we can catch up again in the next few weeks. Stephen Sustanovich there of the Columbia University and CFR.
1: Right now, and this is a really, really important conversation off of what Mike said, Kathleen Busjancic has been doing this a long time with David Rosenberg at Merrill Lynch and now at Oxford Economics, their chief U.S. financial economist. Kathy, your notes stunned me. You look for a higher sustained inflation. What does Chairman Powell do with 8.7 percent inflation? Good
5: morning, Tom. well, I think he's got to stay pretty hawkish in his policy stance. Um, you know, they're only going to go 25 basis points tomorrow. I think if it wasn't for the outbreak of war in Ukraine, uh, we'd be looking at 50 basis points. But of course, he wants to go gradually and cautiously in, in this environment of high uncertainty. Uh, but they've got to, you know, make inflation. They have. They've made inflation their top priority, and it, it continues to be so. Um, and he's going to have to lead the FOMC. Uh, to be pretty consistent and and relatively aggressive compared to what we've seen you know, over previous tightening cycles. So uh, maybe 25 basis points tomorrow, but he may hold out the possibility of 50 basis points at any given mini- meeting going forward, especially if we're correct in, in inflation uh, at the headline, uh, CPI pops up to, to 8.7% by the spring.
3: Kathy, what does Jay Powell do if there's evidence of a slowing economy, but inflation stays high?
5: Yeah, it, it's, this is the worst uh, world, right, for, for central banks, this idea of a stagflationary shock or a possibility of stagflation. We don't think overall we're in stagflation. It's a stagflationary shock, but we think there's strong enough momentum that you're going to see growth around 3%. So even though the economy slows, and it should, um, that's not going to deter them from you know keeping inflation under wraps. We'd have to really see something that looks like we're headed to a precipice of of a recession. And that just doesn't look to be in the cards for now.
3: Right now, I'm looking at the economic data that came out. The good news is there does seem to be a slowing when you strip out food and energy uh, costs, right? So that actually might feed into this feeling that perhaps we're starting to stabilize. The bad news was that empire manufacturing, which plunged, and I wonder if there are signs that things are really grinding to a halt in the face of some of the inflation, in the face of worker shortages that really have been crimping. Uh, some of the capacity at different companies?
5: It's, it's definitely something, you know, we've been watching. Um, but I think overall, some of these regional surveys have been a bit volatile. And what we've seen overall is that demand, you know, for back orders, Uh, to replenish inventories, are still very strong and that producers uh, are still finding ways to um, uh, get their goods out the door. Yes, they face um, some job constraints, uh, but overall, uh, industrial production still looks very healthy to us in manufacturing activity.
4: Kathy, the last time we had some forecasts from the Fed, I think, was the middle of December. That's a long, long time ago. And I'm looking at the dot plot for 23, 160, For 24, 2.1%. I imagine if they had the choice, they wouldn't do forecast tomorrow. They're going to do forecast tomorrow. Kathy, what happens with that dot plot in that summary of economic projections when we all open up that file? What does it look like?
5: Yeah, we we think that the the dot plot estimates have to go massively higher for for this year and and a bit higher for 2023. Uh, We would not be surprised to see Go from three rate hikes, so seventy-five basis points for this year, to one hundred fifty basis points. So they may not go the full one hundred seventy-five that we expect in the markets, uh, but certainly a, a big shift. And we think that by next year, they actually have to start to signal getting towards restrictive policy stance, so closer to two and a half percent on the dot bot.
4: Is that the peak in the rate hiking cycle for you, Kathy?
5: Well, we have it. We have a our, our neutral rate is a little lower at two percent, so we think they go slightly above that. Um, And that would be the peak in 2023. And and then, you know, it's growth that we worry about in the middle part of 2023. That's when we could get a little soft and fall below potential growth.
1: What does nominal GDP do to the mood of America? If I take a Bastiancic 3 and I add 8 to it, that's China-like, isn't it?
5: Well, it, it, yeah, there, there's no doubt that when you add the inflation component, um, it's very strong nominal GDP. And, and these inflation numbers really look like something from another part of the world, right? Um, it, and not here in the U.S. Um, you'd have to go back to the 1980s. So nominal GDP matters. Um, I would say from a, a corporate standpoint, if, if corporations, they need to maintain pricing power to try to take advantage of that. Uh, for consumers, wages have to continue to rise for them to keep spending. But of course, then there's the problem for the Fed. If wages start to rise, then you have this risk of a wage price spiral, which is more self-sustaining. Um, and just adds to the problems that we see in you know, the supply chains, which are being aggravated, of course, by, by the war.
3: Kathy, before we let you go, I'm curious about the situation in China that we're seeing, the lockdowns and some of the supply chain response. We've seen Walmart and Amazon come out and say that you can expect to see some sort of delays in shipping. How significant is this in terms of a contributor, a contributor to inflation going forward?
5: Yeah, it's it's just another headwind and and a ripple through you know supply chains that are already very stressed. Um, we had seen some nascent signs of improvement in the supply chain, so maybe the PPI it was you know picking up some of that. But you had seen that at year end and going into early this year. Um, but I think all of this really gets uh, reversed because of the the war and now because of what's happening in China. So I think this is a significant um, uh, setback here on uh, supply chains. It's only going to add to inflationary
4: pressures. Kathy, thank you as always. Looking ahead to the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. tomorrow, Kathy Boschanchits there of Oxford Economics.
1: Right now we start strong with Ellen Wald on this move in oil. Senior fellow at Atlantic Council, forget about that, author of Saudi. How does the world change for Saudi, Ellen Wald, when oil plunges from 130 down under 100? This is
6: This is a very big plunge, but I think that it... It does show it some. It, it shows a, a bunch of things, but I think in one respect, it shows that OPEC wasn't wrong when they were saying that uh, the the high prices were not exactly due to the supply demand situation and fundamentals, but that there was a lot of financial speculation acting on prices. And had they, you know, just increased production, then uh, it might not have actually even had the effect that that. Um, a lot of countries like the U.S. were looking for. Uh, So I I do think that in in some respects this does indicate their position.
4: Ellen, what do you think is behind the turnaround? Can we start there? Why such a massive move the last couple of days?
6: Yeah, so I think there there are a bunch of factors. Um, You know, most of them are more financial. I do think that the oil market was probably over... Uh, compensating, or or had been had been higher than it should have been given the the supply demand situation. I think that um, news that um, Russian crude is selling for thirty dollars under uh, you know under under the uh, compared to the the benchmark prices was uh, a helpful thing that that kind of brought things down. And I do think that this was to be expected. Um, I I did kind of uh, indicate uh, in. That this was something that we could expect to happen, though I didn't see it happening quite so soon. I think news that India purchased this girl's uh, cargo for $30 under, uh, under the, the benchmark was definitely helpful in, in showing the market that guests. Uh, Russian crude can still be moved and it's going to be moving at a discount. Uh, Then combined with the fact that we're seeing a lot of uh, lockdowns and closures in Beijing and uh, sorry, in in China and in other areas of China due to uh, rising COVID cases is definitely an indication that demand in China could get hit. And China is the world's largest oil importer.
3: But, Ellen, I got to wonder, these are all reasons that we can give, a narrative that we can give to this move. But it feels different. It feels like a violent short squeeze. It feels like a puke, as John said. And I wonder if there's something significant or a historic precedence to the volatility that we've seen that's been unbelievable, like 30 $40 uh, swings in this benchmark price that affects almost everything that we buy. Yeah,
6: I, I, I'm not sure we can find a, a historical precedent for – such huge volatility. I think we we're we're in a period of huge volatility. But part of the reason that the volatility is so great is because we've got inflation acting on oil prices, so everything is magnified because of this. And the oil market is just there's so much more financial speculation, and and it's so much more determined by trading than say it was in right. you know the late seventies.
1: Alan Segui here. We had a wonderful discussion on Germany, on continental Europe, and on the timeline for them to become somewhat energy independent. Can Saudi come to the rescue? I, is there is there something I'm missing when I look for a U.S.-centric solution? What can the Middle East do?
6: Well, here's what the Middle East can do. And what I think uh, is, I think that it will be part of maybe, you know, if, if this situation goes on and Europe and the U.S. continue to shun or ban, in some respects, or, or even if it's just companies shunning Russian oil. Um, you know, we have India say buying a lot more Russian oil, so India is going to then buy less, say, from the Middle East, and the Middle East is going to shift to providing to Europe. We do have um, Boris Johnson talking about going to Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, the, the speculation is that he's going to ask the Saudis to produce more. But what's much more likely is that he's going to say, try to maybe negotiate some kind of of deal where the Saudis just sell Britain more oil, uh, which is more of a shifting pattern as opposed to a uh, you know pr- producing more And uh, I think that that we will over time, you know if if these bans or, or shunning continues, we will see the oil market reorganize, and as that happens, prices should come down, particularly because Um, The countries that continue to buy Russian oil, unless they get sanctioned, will be able to buy it at a discount, and that will affect the price of the benchmarks. Uh, It could also affect the price of the benchmarks if they are buying it in currencies other than the dollar, um, which I think will also cause uh, prices to fall. Um, The thing is, though, that uh, I don't think we've seen the last of high prices. We're in a period
7: of high volatility, not just
4: and that's a point well made. Alan Wald of the Atlantic Council, the brilliant Alan Wald.
7: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q and Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Right now, and this is very important, our
1: definitive source on what's actually going on on the ground in China. China Beige Book International is a must Read on the microdata of China. Leland Miller joins us uh, this morning. Leland, I'm going to go to Liz Economy's new book, The World According to China. And she closes out that book with a China reset. What is the state of domestic affairs in China right now that allows President Xi to get to a China reset? Is his economy falling apart?
8: The economy is not falling apart, but they're on the precipice of some bad things if they don't take care of business. Uh, you know, f- From the beginning of last year, when we saw this enormous de-risking of the economy, de-risking of the property sector, de-risking of the financial sector, what we've been explaining is that this is cheese restructuring towards a, a different growth model. There is going to be much slower growth going forward, and in return, cheese promising common prosperity. But the the, the, the path to get there is not going to be easy, and it's made even more difficult by the fact that this is a party Congress year. So at this point, she has to be very careful. There, there are not threats to his power, but he is making some seismic changes right. in a very politically sensitive year.
1: I don't have the details in front of me, folks, but my memory suggests two mayors were shown the door in recent days. The mayors are powerful. What is the symbolism, Leland Miller, if mayors of cities are shown the door?
8: Well, you know, sometimes it's economic performance, and sometimes it's because they don't get their business taken care of on the COVID front, which is what's been happening recently. Uh, but look, what she is saying is there is no room for error this year. Uh, you look at what's happening in Chinese stocks, uh, and and obviously the world is very skittish on the path that China's taking. Now, what the restructuring that's actually happening is 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 something that she that has to do. The party would not be doing it unless they thought they needed to. Uh, But this means there's no room for error. And if there's people who are not doing their job, they're going to be
2: tossed aside.
3: No room for error at a tenuous time globally. How does this all fit in to China's apparent, if not support for Russia, at least uh, tacit acknowledgement of what they're doing and non-interference with this conflict?
8: Yeah. I think people are way too over their skis. Uh, you know, it, it was strategic for the U.S. to leak the conversations that the Russians and the Chinese had about potentially China arming Russia. Uh, these were early on. It's strategic for China to to try to gain leverage against the U.S., try to push U.S. policy to be weaker in return for adherence to Russia's sanctions. But this idea that Russia is about to ship tanks or missiles, uh, no one knows what's in Xi's head, but this, this is very unrealistic. Uh, just because China has busted sanctions in the past and may do so on the margins at this uh, in, in this round with Russia doesn't mean they're prepared to take catastrophic losses to their big companies, into their economy, uh, the tech sector, et cetera, by, by violating sanctions like foreign direct product rule or anything on the central bank side. So uh, I think people are, are, are too worried right now over this. We need more information before we see that the, the China's actually moving in this direction.
3: Although we are hearing also about China possibly investing in oil companies in Russia, trying to be partners, and part of this is opportunistic, and part of this is to secure their own energy independence uh, because of their lack of oil supplies Mm -hmm. right now. How much credence do you give some of those rumors?
8: Oh I think that's absolutely going to happen. I mean look the, the advantage for China in having a Russia alliance is we you know uh, it's not so you get grouped with Vladimir Putin on the global stage it's so you can buy commodities cheaper. So if China can get hold of cheaper oil, cheaper gas, cheaper wheat, this is a dream come true for she in, in an area that, that that China's really nervous about. So I absolutely think they're going to be positioning themselves to, to, uh, to provide credit to the Russians in certain ways. Uh, there are bilateral swap lines they can, they can, they can uh, make, make available. Uh, so you will absolutely see the Chinese grab as much Russian energy as possible. But this doesn't mean they're going to be arming them in Ukraine. That would be a massive step. Uh, and it would end it very, very poorly for Xi Jinping.
3: Leland, in the meantime, you are seeing these COVID lockdowns. You are seeing the expectation with a lot of Wall Street houses downgrading their view of the Chinese economy. What is the population, the popular support of Xi Jinping like right now? Is he suffering on that front with the domestic population?
8: Yeah, There is there is no evidence that that she's struggling. Look, if you have problems in your economy, there are things you need to take care of. But I, I think that <laughs> you know a lot of these wall street shops now predicting 0% growth it's like they haven't played this game before the the, the odds of china announcing 0% growth or something close to it <laughs> in the next quarter did you
1: see that uh, in this quarter <laughs> John, I, I
8: saw it, we laughed we were fording it around it's ludicrous Uh, Look, it it doesn't really matter what's going to happen. They're not going to report that. So uh, there's going to be a lot of people with egg on their face at the end of this quarter. Plus, we're looking at our own data and we're not seeing 0% growth. So what would you look for?
4: What would you look for? Uh, Where in the data would you look?
8: Well, look, you look at the credit data. So when you look at the credit data, are things going great? Are we seeing the big easy? No, we're not. But we saw something different in February than we did in January. We saw more support in property. Than we did in January, so they're ticking things up. There's not a dramatic deceleration going down, and a one-week COVID lockdown is not going to knock the economy off its uh, off its cylinders.
1: Leland, you sound like McGregor. What is it about these Wall Street chaps? <laughs> Well, look, the
8: motivations are differently. All these Wall Street shops are trying to get into China, which means they have to make nice with, with Beijing. Uh, so this is one of the rare occasions where you're actually seeing a, a sort of more negative take on this, which it's is, so which is a bit surprising. But look, you either have real data and you're seeing what's going on or you're believing Chinese lagging data that's three months old and often manipulated. So,
4: you know, pick your poison. Leland, thank you. Leland Leland Milibell of China Baseball International.
1: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, On The Terminal, I'm Tom Keen, and this is
7: Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.